Well, good morning, Cross Point Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Everybody doing well? well good to see you here. Happy New Year. This is our first Sunday of the of 2016, and, and again, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I know I mentioned that last week, even though we weren't quite there yet, but uh, I, I'm really looking forward to 2016. We have a lot going on in the life of the church, and you know, and, and I'm not just talking about uh, you know vertical and the and the building uh, campaign that we have going on. I don't know if many of you have ridden by there, but there's a lot of machinery out there, and they are plugging, you know, just plowing through a lot of mud right now. You can pray for the rain to ease up a little bit and give us give us some some time to work there. But I'm not talking about just that. I'm excited about a lot of things concerning the new year, and there's a couple of things that I'm praying for, and I, I would ask that you would join me in prayer as we look ahead into 2016. The first thing I'm praying for in a huge way is really an awakening within our community. I, I tell you, it, it's really been on my heart lately to, uh, to really pray in this manner uh, that, that God would move in, in ways that maybe, you know, he never has before in this community, that lives will be changed by his power and his presence, and that God would use us as instruments in the Redeemer's hand to go out and to and to preach the gospel to our community. And so I'm praying for God to stir the hearts and the minds and, and stir the souls of those in our community and all around us as we, uh, as, we as a church go out and share the gospel. And, and my prayer is, is that 2016, we're going to see a lot of people who come to know the Lord Jesus as the as Lord and Savior. And so that's one of the prayers that I have moving into 2016 and invite you to, to pray with me as we uh, as we look ahead. But the other thing that I, I'm really praying for, and, uh, and this pertains to us as a faith family, as a church, but I'm praying for stronger marriages and families within our faith family. I'm really praying for this. Uh, and, and I'm praying that God would, would strengthen us as a faith family, but, but specifically that God would, would begin to work in your life as individual families, and God would strengthen your marriages, that God would strengthen your families. I tell you, we live in a world today where the family is in crisis. It really is. And, and so I'm praying for this, and not only are we praying for this, but we're, you know, uh, the first of February, we're going to be going through a marriage and family series. We're going to really dive into God's Word and, and see what God's Word teaches us about marriage and family and and, and really work towards strengthening our marriages and families within our faith family. And so that's something that's heavy on my heart. And, and I, I would invite you also to join me as we uh, look ahead into 2016, as we pray, and as we, as we really seek God's direction in our life. Uh, I pray that, that God would move not only uh, in our community, but God would move within our families as well, and that we would see tremendous growth spiritually within our families. Maybe some of you in 2016 will experience numerical growth in your family. I don't know. But, uh, but I pray that God would move spiritually within our families and that our lives will be changed by his presence in our life. So as we get ready to pray this morning and we look into 2016, I'd like for us to consider those two things as well as we prepare our hearts for the reading and the preaching of God's word this morning. So pray with me if you will, and we'll dive into God's word together. Father, we just thank you so much for this day, and we thank you, God, for all that you are. And Lord, as we have sang this morning, we've lifted our hearts and our, our voices up to you in praise and adoration, and God, just thankfulness as we consider everything that you are to us. And God, you are so worthy of praise and so worthy of our worship. 
And God, we, uh, we thank you that, Lord, we can now move into a new time of the year, uh, 2016, as we, as we look ahead and we wonder, you know, God, what, what does this new year have in store for us? Father, I pray that we would be intentional as, as the church and God really thinking about how you can best use us to reach our community with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that lives would be changed. I pray, God, that there would be an awakening, a real awakening within our communities, that our, 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 our community would sense your presence and your power, and that 2016 for us would be an opportunity to see lives transformed and lives changed by Jesus Christ in their life. Father, I pray for our marriages and our families. God, as, as, as we continue to move forward as, as a church, God, we also recognize that oftentimes there's struggles within our, our life as, as, as married couples, Lord, as, as, as parents, and, and, and uh, Lord, as even children. And Father, I pray that as, as we prepare to look into the new year, God, that you would already be at work in our hearts and, and God, helping us to, to long for stronger marriages and long for stronger family in our life. God, this is just one of the many things that we pray for as we approach the new year. Father, I pray that today as we dive into your word that you would speak deeply to our hearts. And God, that we would come to understand the truth of your word. And God, how it teaches us such incredible things. And so Lord, we, we uh, just beg for your presence now as we dive into your word. Be with us and, and lead us and guide us as we examine the, the, the holy word. God, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're continuing our study on Romans chapter 9. Go ahead and turn there, if you will. Romans chapter 9. And we're going to be looking today at verses 16 through 13. Now, the title this morning is, is, uh, to this message is titled Divine Election. Divine Election. And maybe you're here today, and, and for you, you have no idea what this really means concerning uh, God's Word and what it teaches on election, or maybe this is a, a topic or an issue that you've studied in great detail, uh, and, and, and you found uh, your place and where you fall on, on election, but, but no doubt the Scriptures mentions election. And so as we press through Romans chapter 9, we find ourselves dealing with the text today that where, where we begin to see God's Word speaking on this issue, and so the message is titled, divine election. Now, it's important that we understand the context of this, of this passage. And last week, we started out with Romans chapter 9, and we were looking at a, at a reality that the Apostle Paul had. He had a, a real burden for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. And so he has a real burden for them, and he is specifically now writing to them. He is writing to them to, to help them understand why it is that he is preaching Jesus as the Messiah, to help them understand why it is that, that, that understanding the gospel is so important for their life. And so we saw last week that he has a real heart for, for the Jewish people to come to understand Jesus as the, as the Messiah, and that many of them in, in, in his day were really pushing back against the gospel. Uh, now, last week we started the series, and we titled the series Absolute sovereignty. And I, and I just want to explain that a little bit as we prepare to dive into this text this morning. You know, 
Uh, we, we thought about the, the reality that this text or this chapter teaches so much on God's sovereignty, especially concerning salvation. And really, if you understand the word sovereign, there's really not a need to put absolute on the beginning of it, right? If you understand that sovereign means in control of everything, then if it's anything less than absolute, it wouldn't be sovereignty at all. But the reality is we live in a world today where, where this word sovereignty is tossed around so often that I believe that many times we, we sort of lose the emphasis of God's sovereignty when we use the word. And so in this series, we wanted to present this series as God's absolute sovereignty to sort of give this word some strength as we think about who it is that God is in his sovereignty. Uh, you know, I was looking up the word sovereignty and simply defined, it could be said like this, supreme power or authority, supreme power or authority. And so most of us here today, if, we, if we're believers in Christ Jesus, if we're followers of Christ and, and, and we know who God is, we would acknowledge that he is supreme in both power and authority in our life. This is something that we would recognize about who God is. And so most of us here today would not argue with the reality that God is sovereign. And so we, we start here. But I love how a couple of men offer a little more depth to the word sovereignty and, and the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty specifically. Norman Geisler, he, he says it like this, describing sovereignty. He says, sovereignty is God's control over his creation, dealing with his governance over it. Sovereignty is God's rule over all reality. And so what he is proposing here is that God is in control of, of everything that he has created. He is the creator of all, that he is in control of everything that he had created. And in fact, he is in control of all reality. And so this is sort of his take on the sovereignty of God. But I also love what R.C. Sproul has to say about the sovereignty of God. And I think this one dives even deeper than, than the first one we looked at. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, if there's, excuse me, if there's any element of the universe that is outside of his authority, then he no longer is God overall. In other words, sovereignty belongs to deity. Sovereignty is a natural attribute of the creator. God owns what he makes and rules what he owns. And I love that. I love the reality that God owns what he creates and he rules over that which he owns. That is describing to me a sovereign God. Amen? And so God is the creator of all things. God is the creator uh, of who we are. He's the creator of all natural things. He's the creator of, of all reality. He is the father of truth. And so he is sovereign. He is, has the power and the authority over everything in this universe. Now here, here's what we need to understand. There is no doctrine on earth that is more despised by the human mind than the sovereignty of God. Because you see, we naturally, as human beings, we naturally push back on this sort of control over who we are. You see, the flesh or the pride doesn't like sovereignty. We like to, we like to believe that we are in control of our own lives, that we are in control of our own destiny, that we have some say-so in how we see our way through this thing called life. And so naturally, uh, we, we tend to push back on this. We tend to push back on this, this amazing doctrine that is described throughout Scripture. 
But, but as a result, oftentimes when we start looking at things like salvation, we also tend to push back on God being responsible for our salvation, that God and God alone is, is responsible for our salvation. We like to feel as though we have some part in the matter. And so what we want to see is we dive into God's Word. Uh, we want to see how all this plays out, and we want to try to understand God's sovereignty in, in, in not only creation and reality, but also in our life and our life as those who have been redeemed by His presence and by His power. And so here we see an amazing text of Scripture that we're going to be diving into today. And, and I, I, I hope that today we see some really powerful truths concerning what the Scriptures teach us here. So read with me, if you will, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, and, and we'll, we'll dive into this uh, following the reading of the Word here. Verse 6, Paul writes, and remember, he's writing to Israel. He's writing to God's chosen people. He's writing specifically to Jewish people. And he says this, But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham just because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now what in the world does this text mean? This is a... This is, a, this is where Paul begins to dive into issues that we typically, as, as believers and, and as followers of Christ and as, as, as uh, disciples mostly of the New Testament because we're most concerned with what, what Jesus is teaching as he comes into the scene, oftentimes we don't understand a lot of the things when, when the New Testament is pointing back to the Old Testament. Maybe we haven't studied it as much. Maybe we haven't thought through it or reflected on it as much. But one of the things that we see as we dive into this is, is the several truths that we learn from this passage. Now, as I said last week, if we, are, if we are looking specifically at the writings of the Apostle Paul when he was specifically writing to a people group that really doesn't concern us, when he is writing to Jewish people, he is writing to the nation of Israel, he is writing specifically to to help them in this sort of pushback that they may have concerning Jesus as the Messiah, then the natural question for us would be, well, what does this have to do with us? Why don't we just skip through these few chapters of Scripture and see what the Word of God as it relates to us? And what we argued last week is that every bit of this is very relevant to who we are as believers because there are certain truths and lessons that we can learn specifically from this text. 
And so today we want to do that. We want to dive into God's Word. We want, to, we want to see how God's Word teaches us something about ourselves and our relationship with God, even though He is specifically writing to a specific group of people here in this text. And so one of the things that we're going to see here, and this is hugely important, this is hugely important, one of the things that we're going to see here that we can relate to is this reality, that our heritage cannot save us. That our heritage cannot save us. And here's what I mean by this. When I say our heritage cannot save us, what, what we see here as Paul is writing this letter, the lessons that we see here and the things that he is teaching to the Jewish people, to the Jewish nation, as he is teaching these things, we begin to see Paul reveal this one big truth to us today, and it's this, that our heritage cannot save us. In other words, let me just say this, that if your grandpa and your grandma were the greatest Christians that you've ever known in all of your life, and as a result of that, they had your parents in church all of their life just you know, loving Jesus, and every one of them loved Jesus. Let me just say this. You can't ride the coattails of your parents nor your grandparents and expect salvation from Jesus Christ just because your heritage is a Christian heritage. God's got to do something in your life. And this is what we see here as Paul is, is, is revealing this, as Paul is writing this letter. You can't, you can't ride the coattails of your friends, of your neighbors, uh, just because your, your mom and dad was Christian doesn't necessarily mean you are. And this is the point that Paul is pointing to as he talks to the Jewish nation, as he writes to the, to the Israel nation there. He's saying, listen, guys. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has come. He has, he has gone to the cross and died on the sin. His blood was spilled for my sin and for yours. He is preaching the gospel to them. There is tremendous pushback, and they are saying, and this is what he's anticipating, is they are saying, yeah, but we're God's chosen people. Now look at what he says here as we dive into this text. Look at verse 6 and, and 7 with me, if you will. He says this, the, He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now, this is probably something they've never heard before. This is something that's new and fresh. Because you see, they've lived their whole life believing that they're God's chosen people. And suddenly, Paul is saying something that is so profound, something so different, that it, it really pushes against the way they've always thought. Paul says here very clearly, he says, he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And the point he is making is this, just because you are Jewish doesn't mean that you are Israel. Somebody's GPS is on. I recognize that voice. Turn right, recalculating. I've never heard it in a sermon. Recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. But the word says this is recalculating. That's hilarious. I didn't even look over there because I don't want to embarrass him. 
Oh, I had it all silent. The rest of you all checking your phones. Let's go ahead and get that all taken care of. But here Paul is preaching. He says, listen, you need to understand who Jesus is because your heritage means nothing. Not everybody who's Israel is Israel. Just because you're Jew doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you're Jew doesn't even mean you're Israel. Just because you descended from the offspring, you're a descendant of, of Abraham, doesn't secure your eternity. And he's very passionate about this. We looked at this last week where the Apostle Paul, he says, man, I would give up my own salvation for the salvation of others if I could only do that. Paul is passionate about this and he wants people to know, listen, don't just claim your eternity secure because of your heritage. Can you imagine how hot this would have made them feel? Could you have imagined how, how furious people might get over something like this? I mean, this is like going to someone who grew up in church all their life and saying, hey, are you a Christian? They say, yeah, I'm a Christian. They say, why do you say you're a Christian? They say, well, I've been going to church all my life. I grew up in Sunday school and I, you know, my parents were Christian. My, you know. That means nothing. Wait a minute now. I, I find that a bit offensive. I mean, I... I've been in church all my life. That means nothing. You see how important this is? You see, I, I believe there's, there's, there's two reasons that most people live their life with a false assurance these days. Two main reasons. One is they believe in their heritage as Christians. And two, they believe that they can work out their salvation through good works. Those are the two main reasons that people are living their life under a false assumption that they are saved when in fact they are not. I remember years ago I was in Slovenia on a mission trip and, and, and going over there, uh, I remember reading some statistics. I've told this story before, but it's just so important that we, that we, that we understand this. But but, it, but as I was traveling over there, as we were flying to this nation to, to do some mission work there, I remember reading the statistics, and one of the things that I saw on the paperwork, the, the statistics of this country, is that the country was 98% Christian. And I thought, well, why are we going? I mean, they ought to be able to reach the other 2%, you know? I mean, I, I remember just, I mean, it's too late, I'm on the plane, I'm going to land in a few hours, and... But I, but I really wondered, what in the world are we going? I mean, who are we going to talk to that doesn't know Jesus over there? 98%? I mean, America's not that good. And I remember thinking, that is incredible. And then we landed, we met the missionary. He started talking about how dark the, the country was, how nobody there believed in Jesus. And I said, wait a minute, Randy. He's a good friend of mine today. I said, wait a minute, Randy. Look, look at what this, this uh, thing from, you know, something-something.gov says, you know, Slovenia.gov says, it says that 98% of them are Christian. He says it says that they're Christian, not a Christian. And I'll never forget that. I remember we hit the streets and we started evangelizing. We were going to a college campus and we were, we were just meeting with different students and, and everything. And, and I remember... I remember how this truth came to light as I went into a coffee shop and, 
And I sat down, and it was very obvious that we were American, you know, uh, South Georgia American too, you know, to, to make matters worse. And right away, the owner of the shop, he recognized that I wasn't from Slovenia. Go figure. And so he walks over and he goes, where are you from? And I told him, and he said, what are you doing here? I mean, this isn't a touristy kind of place, and we don't get many Americans around here. And I told him that I was on missions there, and, 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 and who I was as a believer, and I've come to share the gospel, and he just laughed at me. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. He says, well, I'm an atheist. And I remember he started sharing the truth of of his life and and the truth of his life was that he didn't believe in God he didn't he didn't believe that there was a higher power he didn't believe in all of that and I said well let me ask you a question because I've run into that everywhere I go here and I want to ask you a question because I read a document when when I was flying over here that 98 percent of the people here are Christian and he goes oh yeah yeah we're Christian I said wait a minute that doesn't make any sense to me. This, this isn't how it works in America. I, I don't know about Slovenia, but how can you be, how can you be a Christian and, 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 and yet say that you're an atheist? That, to me, that doesn't go together. And he goes, oh, yeah, we're all Christians here. Our, 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 we've always, our country has always been Christian. And I remember just realizing the reality of this mindset and how warped it was and how it just didn't make sense. And I said, well, why is that? Why would you say you're a Christian? He says, because everybody in my family, as long as I can remember, has been a Christian. And I said, what are your thoughts on Jesus? And he goes, hey, he's this guy that walked on this earth that the Jews killed. My friends... You can call yourself Christian, and it means something totally different than being a Christian. Our heritage means really nothing. If we're going to be saved, then God has to save us. The second truth that I want to point out here, and before I do that, I, I just want to, I want to dive into one last text that I think is it's really important because the New Living Translation gives a really sobering translation of, of Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. It says this, it says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. and We cast out demons in your name and we perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, this is Jesus, I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. You know who Jesus is speaking to? People who say they're Christian, and they're not Christian. You know, as as we prepare to enter into 2016, my greatest prayer for all of us here today is that there would be a great desire within us to do a spiritual checkup a come to jesus time just just you and him and me and him and 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 really pray through this issue of salvation that we can walk with assurance of salvation not a false assumption of salvation the second truth that paul points out here that he reveals to us is that 
And this is important too, and I've already mentioned this, but our works cannot save us. You know, there's, there's many religions that believe if you do more good deeds than you do bad, you sort of tip the scales, and what happens is you earn the right of eternal life. And the reality is that, that many people are living under this false assurance who would consider themselves believers or followers of Christ Jesus, or maybe not followers of Christ, but they would certainly consider themselves a Christian. I can't tell you how many times in, 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 in all of my life as I deal with different people and I minister and I, and I counsel with people and, and I talk about the issue of salvation and I say, well, give me a little bit of a testimony. And, and they say, well, I, I think I'm a good guy. This is where so many people in our world today are living as it concerns salvation, as they think about why they are Christian is, is because in their life, in their mind, they are living every day trying to be as good as they can so that somehow they will earn favor with God and that God will love them enough to allow them into heaven. I don't know about you, but I... That's one of the toughest ways in the world to live to me. Because here's where I find myself always, even today, knowing, knowing that I am a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, I never feel like I'm good enough. Do any of us really ever feel like we're good enough? I can't imagine living under that false assurance that i got to work harder and harder and harder every single day because God just needs, he's got to, somehow he's got to find favor in my life. And so what Paul points out here is that works has really nothing to do with it. You know, in our text, Paul mentions Rebecca, and, and, and we would have to go back to the Old Testament. We certainly don't have time. I've got one minute left. And a good night. I've got to. We, we're going to have to continue this one next week. But, I, but the re reality is in our text here today, he, he mentions Rebecca, and we would have to go back to the Old Testament to to study this, but Paul mentions Rebecca, and Rebecca was the wife of Isaac, and who was the son of Abraham. You remember he specifically mentions here, just because you're of the seed of Abraham or the offspring of Abraham, doesn't mean that you're the offspring. I know that's sort of confusing, but if, if you're Jewish, you understand completely what Paul is saying here. And, and so what we know is that, uh, that Isaac and Rebecca, they had two sons, Esau and Jacob, and both of them were of the seed of Abraham. Now look with me at verses 10 and 11. It says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. So here Paul says, you know, in case they come into this world thinking that, that, that eternal security is in either being good or bad, you know, before that, was even, before that even took place, those good works could even take place. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, in other words, that is, that, that your eternal security would prevail in order for that to take place, not because of works, you see that? Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Talking about God being the one who is responsible for eternal salvation. I remember the first time I heard this because it's specifically talking about Esau and Jacob. And I remember, I remember the first time I even heard that story reading through the Old Testament. 
and how it just seems sort of unfair. You know, I mean, you look at Esau's life, he, he seems to be a pretty good guy. I mean, he's a skillful hunter, he's a good cook. I mean, you know, he, he's got a lot of good things going for him, doesn't he? And you, you watch him living out his life and you wonder how come his security, I mean, his eternal eternity was not secure, but yet Jacob's was. And you look at this and it, it just seems sort of unfair because God is the one who is responsible for this. The, the, the Old Testament preaches this and teaches this. And, and now here we see in Romans chapter 9, the same thing being sort of revealed to us. And we wonder, you know, how could this happen? It just seems sort of unfair that, that God would, would love Jacob but hate Esau. And, and let me just say this, is, is when we look at this, God loving Jacob and hating Esau has nothing to do with the human emotion of love like we understand it. As we look at this text, we begin to realize it has everything to do with God choosing one man and rejecting the other. And you look at that and you go, how could that be? Why would that be? And we struggle with that. And it doesn't seem fair. But the reality is we begin to realize is that God understands things that we don't. And whereas we see a guy who seems to be an okay guy, what God sees is rebellion. What God sees is disobedience. What God sees is selfishness. And it's not the man Esau that God hates. It's the sin that God despises. It's the rebellion. It's the self-centeredness. It's the I can get through this thing on my own without you, God, that God absolutely despises. And so here we see, as we read through this text, and we have to believe that God is smarter than us. I know that's sometimes hard to imagine, but we, we have to look at this and realize that God knows more. In fact, the Word gives testimony to this in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It says this, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts more than your thoughts. I, you know, one of the things that we can never do as humanity is figure out everything as it relates to God. Our minds are just too finite. We're just not smart enough to understand it. And we don't need to understand it. The New Testament, though, is very clear that our works cannot save us. We cannot earn salvation. And so we see this. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is really the pinnacle of this truth that we, that we cannot earn our salvation. Look at this with me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this. For by grace... What is grace? Grace is receiving that, what? Which you don't deserve. That's, that's how you can define grace. We are saved based off of not receiving something that we earn. We are saved. We don't deserve it. We, we didn't even earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't even come close to earning salvation. We don't even come close to doing enough good works to justify ourselves. So Ephesians 2, 8 9 says... For by grace you have been saved. Look at this with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith in Christ Jesus. And this is not, look at this, can it be any more black and white? This is not of your own doing. 
It's because God loved you enough and he poured out his grace on you. God saved you. For by grace you have been saved through faith in Christ Jesus. This is not your own doing. Look at this. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Isn't it amazing how the God of Word just knows us so well? Guess what I did today? I gave my life to Jesus. I got saved. Guess what I did today? I told God, okay, I was ready to follow him. For by grace, receiving that which we don't deserve, for by grace we've been saved through faith in Christ Jesus. This is not something we do. This is something God does in us through Christ Jesus. This brings me to my final point now that we're 40 minutes over. Only God can save us. 2 Timothy 1.9. I'm going to ask Shocker if he'll come on up. Shocker, good to have you with us today, buddy. Left Georgia Tech to come spend the day with us here. 2 Timothy 1.9 says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Look at this, verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. There's that word grace again. Because God wanted to give us something that we didn't deserve. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus. before the ages began. Boy. Boy, do I long for our friends and our family and our co-workers our neighbors, the people down the street, and the people across town to know Jesus in 2016. Boy, do I long for Cross Point Church. Not the organization, the family, the people. Boy, do I long for us to have a passion for people who are hurting and desperate and hopeless. And without Jesus, to know him 2016. Boy, do I pray that we would get off of our lazy bottoms 
be faithful and obedient in proclaiming His name to the nations. We can't save them, but He has called us to tell them. How many of you remember the day you responded by faith to God saving you? You remember that day? I remember the day. I, I remember it to be something like this. It's, it's the day I, I said I gave my life to Christ. I remember going down to the, to the preacher after the message and man, my heart was just stirred and I said, man, I got to take care of business today. I got I to gotta get right with God. I got I to gotta give my life to Jesus. And I, I couldn't wait for the preacher to hush so I could go down and talk to him and celebrate that I wanted to give my life to Christ Jesus. And as soon as that prayer was over, I took off down front and I, I came to the preacher and I said, today is the day I want to give my life to Jesus and I want to follow him and and there was great celebration in my life and in his and in the church. There was great celebration when I was baptized, a believer's baptism. And I began to live my life for Jesus. Now there was still ups and downs. There was a lot of sanctifying that had to be done. There was a lot of country boy to get out of there, you know. A lot of Christian to put in there. And so God would was working in my life, but I remember the day that all that happened. And as I, as I grew and I matured, and I thought about that day in my life where I gave my life to Christ, I realized that it had less to do with me giving my life to Christ and more to do with me responding to what the Holy Spirit had been doing in my life for years. You see, I remembered that three years prior to that, while living in South Florida, how I rode by one day an old church that's probably a museum these days, an old historic-looking church. It was a beautiful church. It was a, 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 a sort of a, a, a fan of architecture, and it was really amazing-looking and all. And I remember driving by there and just saying, three years before I gave my life to Christ, man, I need to get back in church. And realizing now that that had less to do with my intellect making that decision for me and the Holy had more to do with the Holy Spirit of God stirring within me. I think back even 10, 15 years before that when I was driving through Eastman, Georgia and saw a Christian bookstore and turned around to come in to buy my first Bible and realized that God had been a part of my life even then. That the Holy Spirit of God for so long in my life, had been wooing me and drawing me closer and closer to Himself. And I bet that today as you consider your life in Christ Jesus, and you consider the truth of how God works in our life before we ever make that decision to follow Him, God's been active long before that. God stirring, God moving, Jesus working. We live in such a culture today that wants 10 steps to anything. Have you ever noticed that? 
Go to Books A Million. There's a whole row on them, you know? Ten steps to being a whatever. Butterbean sheller. You know, I mean, you can... You, you can find out how to do anything. If you can't find it at Books A Million, go to YouTube. There's 10 ways to shell a butter bean. I promise you, you can find it. It's crazy. We live in that kind of culture. There's, there's not 10 steps to salvation, my friends. There's one way, and his name is Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 11... 28 and 29, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. This morning, this morning, is God doing something in your life? This morning, do you sense the Holy Spirit of God stirring in your heart? This morning, do you feel the tug of of a holy and righteous God saying to you, come to me and in me find rest for your soul? If that's you this morning, Won't you go to Him? Won't you surrender to a God who cares so deeply for you that while you were yet still a sinner, Christ died for you? Won't you give your life to Him today? Because He has bestowed His grace upon your life. That's my prayer for you today. That's my prayer for all of us here today. In just a moment, our band's going to come up. They're going to lead us in this last song. Our pastors will be down front. I'll be down here. Linnell's down here if you'd like to come and speak to one of us. We're here for you. If we can help you answer any questions. If you have felt this this prompting of the Holy Spirit for so long and, and all it has done for you is just sort of left you with not knowing what's next, then please come and talk to someone. We want to help you today begin a journey with Jesus for 2016 and for eternity. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, God, for... God, the power of your word Thank you, Father, for the reality of of your involvement in our life. God, your, your, your Bible, your word, your scriptures teach us that, God, the only way we could love you is because you first loved us. God, the Bible teaches us that while we were yet still sinners, while our minds and our hearts were on our own passions and our own lust and our own sin, God, you sent your son to die on the cross that his blood would be spilled for the atonement of our sins, for the washing and the renewal of our souls. God, this is what your Bible teaches us. 
God, we're here today and we don't even know what to do next. God, I pray that we would be responsive to you today. I pray that we would be moved by your presence in our life and your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that today we would do a spiritual checkup in our own life. And God, when, if we're here today and we have that assurance that Christ is our everything, that, that God, we have been saved by your grace through faith in Christ Jesus, I pray that we would, we would begin to pray two things for our life. God, how can you use us in a bold way to reach those whom we know with the gospel message? And Father, secondly, that we would be faithful to pray, to pray for an awakening in our community. God, we love you and we need you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.